I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. An invisible enemy has turned our lives upside down. We now live in a world where a roll of toilet paper is more sought after than a first edition of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Where Karen from the internet is an instant epidemiologist and has a meme to prove it. Where smoking dacha is legal and going to work will land you a prison sentence. We travel into the heart of the lockdown to bring you Amabuka Booker, the Quarantine Chronicles. Author's lockdown. T minus 17. Trevor Noah's path to the hot seat of the Daily Show began with a criminal act, his birth. His autobiography, Born a Crime, documents his path from South Africa to New York. No, we don't have Trevor Noah on Zoom meeting, but we're interviewing another person who was born a crime because of apartheid's petty but brutal laws. Sarah Jane Makwala King is the queen of late night radio. She's also the author of the riveting memoir, Killing Caroline, which documents her journey from Caroline to Sarah Jane, back to Caroline, and then finally and triumphantly to Sarah Jane once again. It's a journey that takes us from Joburg to rural England to Cape Town and tells a powerful and poignant story about an affair between a black man and a white woman in apartheid South Africa. A primal wound, identity, adoption, belonging, sort of belonging, not really belonging, rejection, loss, hair trauma, the pencil test, race and racism. It's a collision of multiple worlds, but always a search for meaning, sometimes in a bottle. Killing Caroline is an easy read, but it's not always easy reading. The book, like Sarah Jane herself, is smart, thoughtful, and authentic. Welcome, Sarah Jane. I know you're working on a new book. Could you please read an extract from your new book? Yes, for sure. This is quite nerve-wracking because I haven't, um, I don't think even my publisher has seen this, but um, yeah, so so here goes. And I don't even know whereabouts in the book this will go. It doesn't have a, a chapter title or anything. All right. Every year I check myself into the clinic. Every year. If I was a normal person, I'd go to Plet or Neisner, or maybe I'd go to Thailand and yoga the living shit out of myself, or perhaps float to Indonesia on a cloud of self-righteousness to rescue bull elephants from having bloated, sunburnt tourists hitching a cultural lift on their thick-skinned, sturdy backs. I might even go and prostrate myself before wizened old babas in India in the hope that their eons of patiently perfected spirituality might somehow rub off on me through prayer, proximity or osmosis. But I'm not a normal person, so I go to the clinic. It's not even a case of if I'll go, but when. It's almost got to the point that you can set your watch by me, but not quite because they're not timed, these admissions, at least not by any specific date on the calendar. I go to the clinic when too much of real life is interfering with the appearance, the fallacy of hashtag loving life that I'm constantly trying to lead. Real life is the stuff that happens in between all those bullshit hashtags. It's what happens the second after Facebook pings me a notification that I have posted, or as soon as I tweet some dry, probably plagiarized witticism on Twitter. A Twitticism? Or the instant I send a plate of garlic butter prawns into the Instagram ether, just to let who the fuck knows know that I'm hashtag banting again. Real life is what happens in and amongst the I'm fines, the 
thank you for coming there. For sure. See you next week's. It deftly seizes the gap between the I'd love to's, the just tell me when's, the of course I don't mind, truly's. And it takes hold, burrowing its gnarly roots into the precarious, sandy foundation of the charmed and entirely imagined life I want you to think I'm living. It squeezes itself into the small guff-filled crevices left by the we simply adored Paris last summer's, the can't wait for first Thursdays, and the look how fucking happy and in love and satisfied sexually, spiritually, and of course, financially we are, and here's a picture to prove it. Real life does all this, and then when it's properly anchored in, takes an enormous ceremonious dump on the false promise of make-believe. Given the opportunity, real life can, will, and does jam its ugly, calloused, verruca-riddled foot into the door labelled full sense of security and kick you half to death. Real life is a leveller. Real life is sneaky as hell. Wow. I can't wait to read it. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) Killing Caroline is, is a personal book and you share intimate and revealing details about your life and what you went through. And it sounds like this new book is similar. How is it to be so open to make yourself so vulnerable? Um, I think it's, um, there's two things. One is that I'm, I'm a long-term recovering addict. So I've been in recovery now for, it'll be 13, 14 years this year. And the foundation of recovery is honesty. You can't get recovery without honesty. So in that regard, becoming honest and, and being open and being transparent and sharing of myself um, these days comes quite easily. Um, but that's in the context of recovery um, and in fellowship and 12-step meetings where everyone else is in the same boat and everyone else is doing the same thing. It's slightly different when you're doing it to an unknown audience who aren't all in recovery and who aren't all working towards the same kind of recovery path and spiritual path, that they don't have to sit there and go, we've all done that and we're all complete ourselves as well. They can just sit there, read your book and say, God, you're a real piece of work. You're a dreadful human being. So although the the idea of honesty comes very easily and the idea of kind of wearing my heart on my sleeve these days is quite easy it's the how the receipt of it isn't I'm not quite as comfortable with yet although Killing Caroline helped me to do that enormously so I think even in the second book now I will be even more open and even more honest about stuff that probably people would think, why would you want other people to know that? But I just do. And I find it healing. You're doing nightly readings of Killing Caroline on your Facebook page. How does it feel to be rereading your memoir Mm. after three years? I've read it once through in the last three years since it was published. I went to Mozambique a couple of years ago and I thought, let me read this bloody book. Like it's been a year or so by then. And I thought, let me, let me kind of try and put, now there's been some distance. Let me try and put my eyes on it as a reader. And that was just, I sort of rushed through it in, you know, in a couple of days and thought, oh, not bad. Um, now reading it out loud to an audience it is a mixture of um, reading it again and doing what I normally do in things like this or interviews where somebody says, read a passage and there's, norm- and there's an audience. So it's, it's kind of married those two experiences. It's quite strange. Um, also because there are things in the book that I, ha- that I don't think about on a daily basis anymore and then rereading it. And it reminds me, it, remi- it puts me back in a time, whether it be in England when I was growing up or whether it be when I was back in South Africa. And 
it's been a, it's been really interesting. Things that I hadn't, and also now I'm a mum, which I wasn't the last. You know, this is a, a new thing. My daughter's five months old, and so there's stuff around my adoptive mother's infertility, for example, which is quite poignant now. Stuff around my own biological handing me over at sort of seven and a half weeks old, you know, and now I'm a mum, and I can't imagine. I mean, th- there's there's no way somebody would convince me, whatever the circumstances, to hand over my child so i'm reading it as a different person really okay we're going to get back to that but before that the one person who remained elusive in killing caroline was your biological father and because of the circumstances he never had a say in what Mm. happened to you when you were born and there was a sense that you would never be able to trace him yeah but then you sent this tweet out just after noon on the 12th of December, 2017. I found him. Thank you so much to everyone who mm. retweeted. I spoke <laughs> to my father for the first time this weekend. We are planning to meet very soon. We are beyond happy. Thank you all for the best Christmas gift ever. How did this all unfold? Wow. Gosh, that makes me quite emotional. You, me you, too. You've done your research, Jonathan. Um <laughs> It unfolded because, so I um, did an interview with um, my former colleague, uh, Koketsu Sachane. He had been standing in for Eusebius MacKaiser, who, of course, does this 9 to 12 show on 702 and used to do it on, on Cape Talk. Um, Eusebius, he, he'd gone away on holiday or something, and Koketsu was standing in. And he said, I know that you really want to find your dad and we have the opportunity, you know, we have, we know that he's in Joburg, or we certainly thought he did. We've got a Joburg audience. Let, don't you just want to give his name? And I was, I'd battled around it because I, I hadn't given his real name in the book. And the reason for that was because I didn't want to, you know, I'd had such a horrific experience with my biological family. And, and basically, you know, they'd said, you've ruined our family by doing this and, and by sort of coming back out of the woodwork and all this kind of thing. And I didn't want that for another family, my dad's family who would have been in a a far more vulnerable position and who were not to blame in any given shape or form. Um, But I also thought this is going to plague me until the day I die. And so we just on really on the spur of the moment, I gave his name on air. Um, And within 24 hours, I think it was within 24 hours or 48 hours, somebody had messaged me on Facebook and said, could this be your father? And there was a net, his name and two telephone numbers. And we phoned the number, say we, this is me and my, me and my then partner phoned this number and spoke to my dad for the first time. And it was absolutely surreal. And the funny thing was, is that my part, it was my partner who'd, who phoned and said, is that Mr. Makwala? Um, and my dad said, yes. And, and he said, did you used to work at the Balalaika Hotel? And my dad said, no, which he did, of course. Um, And then just, he was being quite cagey. And then just as we were about to hang up and say, well, you know, this is, we can't try anything out. This is it now. This is the last ditch attempt. He said, well, it was a really long time ago. And then we knew we had him and that was it. And it kind of all went from there. And yet a week after that, um, I flew to Joburg and I, and I met my dad, yeah. Sure. Which brings us to the second significant event. And in Killing Caroline, mm. you wrote how you decided resolutely to never have children. And yet... <laughs> <laughs> and yet, if you listen closely, you'll probably have to hear us screaming in the background. Um, yes, and yet. You know, a, a lot happened um, in quite a short space of time. And, and a lot of the reason for me not wanting to have children was around things that I hadn't processed 
obsessed around my biological mother, around my adoptive mother as well, just around motherhood, I think, around what motherhood meant. And there was a lot of growth as a result of killing Caroline. A lot was put to bed. A lot was resolved within myself. And I was, you know, I'm 40 this year. And last year, I just thought, you know, I do want this. I want my own family. That's what I thought. I thought I don't need to exist in the legacy of turmoil and lies and pain and weird, crazy, fucked up motherhood that I've experienced. I can actually create my own legacy that isn't that. And suddenly I realized I desperately want to have children. I desperately want to have a family. Um, and so, yeah, fast forward, fast forward a year. And here I am with a, with a five month old baby. <laughs> and, and the timing is interesting. I'm not sure if it's good that you are in lockdown with your daughter, if it's a good sort of yeah. mother daughter bonding mm. time, or if it's actually terrible time because you are locked down with your daughter. It's, it's really tough. It's, I'm not going to lie. It's really tough. I'm also a single parent, which I hadn't banked on. Um, so yeah. And, and, you know, the first sort of five months of her life, well, the only five months of her life I have, because I've been a single parent, getting out has been so important to me. Um, walking on the beach with her, even if it's just, you know, putting her in a, in a sling and walking with her and going out and being out and connecting with nature. It's been crucial to my mental health. One of my biggest fears was as somebody who suffers with mental health issues that I would get postnatal depression. Touch wood, I haven't had that, but I think that's largely because I've been acutely aware of being able to be outside. You know, we basically, we sort of wake up in the morning, have breakfast and we at, we're out the door. And then we come in at sort of, you know, six o'clock in the evening, bath time and bed. And now we don't have that. And so it's, it's really difficult. And it's really difficult, you know, as a, as a single mom with a newborn baby and now back at work, maternity leave is over and in lockdown. And it just, it's just, you know, I could, we could, none of us could ever have predicted that this was going to happen. And I sometimes sit here in, you know, in the middle of the night and think, no one's coming to rescue me. This is it. This is this is my life at this point. And it's certainly not the life that I had wanted when I decided, or when we decided, should I say, um, that I was going to have a baby. But, you know, I'm... <sighs> I'm nothing if not a survivor and I'll get through it and it will be great material for the second book. (laughs) That's the only way that I can look. That's the positive that I'm looking at it. And, you know, also as hard as it is, I am sitting here in comfort with a fully stocked fridge and, and, and I'm, I'm doing a lot better than probably the majority of South Africans are doing. If you could choose an author to be in isolation with, who would you choose? Melinda Ferguson. <laughs> she she would certainly be entertaining. I tell you why. I mean, that's she will love that I've said that. Just because she is as mad as I am, and we basically <laughs> we've we've had about five WhatsApp calls already, uh, videos already today. Um, I mean, we literally we talk every day, um, so that would be great. But but on a more serious note, oh gosh. Um, I tell you who, actually, and I'm going to name drop terribly. But the other day, I interviewed um, for Vurtfius, I interviewed Jodie Piku, who I confess is not an author whose work I have read a great deal of, just because I think I'd been quite, um, I, I assumed that her genre, whatever that we mean when we say genre, wasn't really my thing. I, I love biography. I love memoir. So obviously she hasn't done that yet. And that's, that's her 
that's not her, her, her genre. But I interviewed her and she was absolutely fascinating and fantastic. And she spoke on things about um, race and privilege that I would never have imagined, you know, this, this, uh, and I sort of, I'm saying this in, in air quotes, white woman, chick lit American would be connected with. She completely floored me. She was absolutely divine and she was fascinating. So yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say I'd love to, ha- I'd love to have had more time with her. So yeah, Jodie Piku. If, and we're talking worst case scenario, you do run out of toilet mm. paper. Is there a book mm. on yourself that you'd be prepared to sacrifice? Yeah, there is. And I'm definitely not giving you the name of it because it's the status. <laughs> It's a South African author, and I will be. And if it, and if we got out, I would be absolutely lynched. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll private message you one day. But yes, there is. The podcast Desert Island Discs allows participants to take with them on a desert island one song, one luxury item. Mm. But we are much more generous, and we can allow you to take a song, a luxury item, and a book into your lockdown. Which three things sure. will you take with you? Okay, the song is Paradise Road by Joy. The uh, the luxury item, Heavens Above. I'll come back to that. And the book, the book is going to be Zora Neale Hurston, Their Eyes Were Watching God. The luxury item is going to be, because presumably I have to take my daughter with me. I can't just abandon her, you know, while I'm on a desert island. So she's going to be with me. Um, And I'm going to take the giraffe, She's got this cuddly toy giraffe that deals with like whether she's screaming, whether she's having a blue fit, the giraffe solves every problem. So I have, that's my luxury item is this cuddly toy giraffe. <laughs> Perfect. And now. The sound of it. Rorschach test. That, that I mean, birds, obviously. Um, and it's funny because I was reading this um, a particular uh, chapter of the book last night during my during the Facebook Live, um, which spoke about um, when I was younger, moving from our small, not a small-ish, um, the first house that I lived in with my mom and dad to um, the farm that I grew up on. And the house was called Magpies. They called the house Magpies mm-hmm. um, because when they first went to go and view the house, on the lawn and in the fields, which was just this dozens and dozens of magpies. Um, and so the house became known as, as magpies. And I, if I'd thought about it more when I was writing the book, I probably would have drawn some analogy, probably much to the horror of adoptive parents, about magpies taking things from the nests of other birds and other magpies. And I probably could have drawn some analogy between that and adoptive parents, which would have made them love me even more than they already do. Uh, she said, tongue firmly in cheek um and um yeah but that house and, and that's what we were I was reading last night and it was funny because it seems like another lifetime ago that I lived in that house and I can't remember the last time I went um when I go and visit my mom in England which happens very rarely these days unfortunately but I she still lives very close to that to that big house but I never go there again and, and when we had to leave because my parents got divorced and we needed to sell the house I think a part of me a part of my little childhood heart was broken that day and I've never been back but I would love to take my daughter there one day and say this is where mummy grew up hmm. <laughs> oh that's funny as well because I was reading last night um 
the, a part in the book where I talk about um, turning two as being my earliest memory. I think I start a chapter with, with saying that I'm, I'm standing there at the front door and I'm holding up two fingers and I'm saying to a, a guest who's turned up to my party, I'm two today. And that's my, that was my youngest memory. Um, and so I was having a party so that those, those sort of children's voices and whatnot remind me of, of that. And I, I wonder now, now that I'm a mum, what will be my child's first memory? My mum was absolutely stunned that I could remember back as young as two. But I could very clearly, I remember very clearly my, my second birthday party, people arriving, and I wrote about that in the book. Um, so it, it's interesting now, I, I wonder, wonder what my child's first memory will be. And I think what's so, what's so interesting is that it won't be my first, you know, I, I will have memories, of course, of her being born and, and, and all the little things that go on on our day-to-day basis, but her memory won't be that. It's just, and I think it's just, it's interesting, the separateness of parent and child or there's something I think there's probably ultimately something quite narcissistic in having one's own child in terms of their you know them being being an extension of you in that regard but actually the fact they have different memories and different experiences is it just goes to highlight how how very separate they are from us and they're not really ours they're not really our children are they they're just they're just children that we have created and as soon as they're out (laughs) they're on their own path regardless of what we try and do I guess (laughs) gosh that's quite macabre um that reminds me of when when i was about i guess about seven or eight years old we went to um some seaside town in in england i'm going to say like brighton or eastbourne and they had a ghost train on this on this on the pier and my brother really wanted to go and and my dad said that we could go and so we we went and I just remember being so freaked out it was just it was so creepy and I just the (laughs) I had no business being on it I was although I wasn't an anxious child I just that sort of thing I don't know why I, I I actually went on but I remember just going around with my hands over my ears the whole time and my eyes so tightly closed and of course my brother who was three years older than me just trying to scare the shit out of me the whole the whole time around and, and we just going around in the dark I mean anything could have been in there and the funny thing is and again it's all about context isn't it because I'm sure that years later I've, I, I would have gone on a ghost train at some point and it wouldn't have bothered me, you know, as a teenager or something. And it would, but just as a seven, six, seven-year-old child, just that, the thing of what's in the dark, what's in the dark that, that could potentially cause me jeopardy. Yeah. Wow. Is Killing Caroline available as an e-book? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And your your new book, do you have a particular deadline that you're working towards or is that a rude question? It's a rude question. Um, <laughs> no, it's good. luckily, luckily, Melinda has got all of her books for this year. So it won't be this year, but I'm guessing early next year. Okay. And do you have a working title yet or is that still a secret? Um, it's a secret. And the answer is no. So it's, it's a no. And if I did, it would be a secret. Yep, I understand. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to read your, your new book. So a year is going to be a long time, but hopefully you will find some time, some quiet time, and your daughter will sleep yes. during this lockdown, and you'll, you'll find some quiet time to get it out even sooner. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Thanks so much, Sarah-Jane. Bye. Thank you for listening to I'm a Booker Booker, the Quarantine Chronicles, live from the lockdown. 
You can subscribe to I'm a Booker Booker on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a Booker Booker is produced by Jonathan Anser and Dan Dews and brought to you by Books Live in collaboration with Multimedia Live. Authors who would like to be featured, email jonathan.anser at gmail.com. I'm a booger.